it's amazing, the law and the wordiness of law and how, how law can be so constraining and confining and easily we think about God's law that way. Easily we, we end up understanding, well, God's law is just this huge, ambiguous, and weighty, and there's no way anybody can keep it kind of thing. It surprised me when I printed it out. Only 17 pages. Our office manager was happy that it was only 17 pages. You know, she watches the printer and things like that. But it's really, it's not nearly as unwieldy as we would think that it is. And then when they asked Jesus to summarize the law, he says, oh, that's, that's easy. That's easy. Love the Lord. And he didn't just pull that out of the air. That's what the book of Deuteronomy says. We're go- as in, in this series, through God's book, God's 66, we've called it, in, in this series, getting a God's eye view of the scripture, I want us to take a book a week and, ju- and get a glimpse of what's the overall, what do we learn about God and ourselves and life from this book of the Bible. I want us to get a big picture view of God's word. As we do that, from Deuteronomy, you're thinking, oh no, Deuteronomy, there's law. Prepare to feel bad this morning. Prepare to be condemned. You came to church to be condemned, Right? I hope not. I hope not. But the psalmist prays this way, and I want you to pray with me. Lord, open my eyes that I might behold wonderful things from your law. Amen. The law has wonderful things toward us. The law reveals if, if law is such a big part of the Bible, and yet we know as, as Christians, we we relish, we rejoice, we rely on the fact that I am no longer under law, I am under grace. The law of the spirit of life in Christ has set me free from the law of sin and of death. I'm free. So then what do I do with law? Genuine question asked in the book of Romans. What then? Should we continue in sin since we're not under law but under grace? Since I'm, I'm not under law, should I just do whatever I want? What do I do with law? Is it relevant today? If we're not under law, should we even bother to read the book of Deuteronomy? What good is it for us? Well, let me explain the the context of Deuteronomy, first of all. Deuteronomy, as you probably found as you're reading through your Bible, and I hope you are reading through. In fact, I did something different with the notes on the back side this week. On the back of your notes, there's um, there's, there's been some additional questions dig in a little further into the book that we were studying well i i did that still for deuteronomy but i've shifted i've said hey i want to help you guys to read ahead so i want i wanted to give you some ideas of things to look for next week as you're reading joshua and we'll, and we'll start doing that from now forward we'll be looking ahead a week give you a chance to read ahead and then we'll wrap it all together on sunday all right well, as you're reading in the law, what, what do you get out of it? Where's the, what's the flow here? Well, they've just, we just come out of the book of Numbers. Numbers was the invitation to go into the land, but they did not, as we heard from Caleb last week. They did not enter in. They wandered in wilderness until that entire generation had died again. So the book of Deuteronomy stands in a new place with a new generation. A new place for a new generation, and yet the invitation is is the same to enter into God's promise. To step into that inheritance, that land that he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would give these people. Their, Their parents' generation had rejected it, but now this is a new generation. 
Oh, this would be a great time to say, okay, this is to a new generation, and we'd, we'd turn our attention over to the high schoolers, but oh no, the high schoolers aren't here this morning. The high schoolers are all off on the winter blast retreat, up in the snow, hopefully getting nice and cold and having a wonderful time together with their leaders, and that leaves us. But how about you millennials? How about this millennial generation, this uh, uh, later 20s to to 30-somethings that have this angst and and lack of satisfaction with the status quo and and this feeling like for so long, even in the Christian life, we've been going through the motions, we've been playing games, and let's get real and let's get serious about our faith. Let's step into this inheritance that we have in Christ Jesus. That's exactly what the call in the book of Deuteronomy is. A book to a next generation. Let's pick on the boomers for a minute. The boomers have been, have been making a mess out of things ever since they got started. I mean, from the 60s forwards, what has been the same since the boomers came along, right? You put, oh, you don't, you don't think that's funny. Well, I'm, the boomer generation has, has, has reinvented everything as they've come to it, including retirement now. As boomers are, are stepping into retirement, the baby boomers, they're, they're reinventing what that looks like as well. They've been a generation that hasn't been satisfied with the status quo, but wanting to to stir things up and start things fresh, do things different. That's a call out of the book of Deuteronomy. No more status quo. No more as things have been. A call to a new generation to step into what it is that God has promised, to live in his inheritance. Let me give you the overall flow, the overall flow of the book of Deuteronomy. And I actually have this outline for you. I think it's outlined in your, in your notes as well. The first, the first major break is the first 11 verses, and that's remembering God's faithfulness with obedience. Remembering God's faithfulness, and we, re- we will remember his faithfulness with our obedience. But obedience is a response. That's key because that's a parallel into the New Testament. Obedience, following the Lord, is a response out of his faithfulness. First 11 chapters are a reminder of all that God has done. Look at the wonders God has did. Look what God did through the wilderness. Look what God, how God continued to reveal himself to our parents' generation even after they had rejected his promise and determined not to go into his inheritance. And in with that, there's a call. There's a summary of the law which will be restated. That's where the summary of it occurs. Hear, O Israel, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's where that line that Jesus later quotes comes from. It comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. A central passage for all of Israel. Israel, if you get nothing else, he says, hear this. So there's a, there's a call to remember God's faithfulness with obedience. Well, what should obedience look like? There's the next section, the core of the book, verses 12 to 26, or chapters 12 to 26, rather. Chapters 12 to 26, that's that 17 pages I, I, I printed out. This is a restatement of the law. And what's it about? Well, I don't want to read through it all, so let me, let me just highlight Uh, The issues that obedience in the law concern worshiping God. Worshiping God, worshiping God only. Not worshiping idols. Not following after the patterns of the people in the land ahead of you. Not following after Baal. They are stepping into a spiritual battlefield. They are moving into a land where there have been demonic spiritual entities behind and empowering idol worship that they will easily be distracted. If it's spiritual, it must be true, right? No, it's 
It's spiritual, and yet it's a lie. It's spiritual, and yet it's a spiritual entity in rebellion against God. Don't go there. So they're stepping right into the middle of a spiritual battle that has already been going on, and that's why there's careful and specific instruction to them to to guard their own hearts against spiritual temptation. Worship God only. Rely on his truth. Don't listen to false prophets. Give. Give a tithe. A tithe of, of the produce. Out of all that abundance that God gives you, then give a tithe or a tenth back. The law includes forgiving. It includes generosity. It includes the worshiping together, the assembling together of God's people in these festivals, these celebrations of God's goodness. It includes practical matters like murder and lying, uh, marriage, purity, theft, social justice. In summary, the law is intended to create in the midst of of a world that is in rebellion against God is to create a unique and different people. When you think about holy people, don't think about a list of things they do and don't do. Think about holy as unique, as devoted to God, a special or particular or peculiar or different people who are devoted to God in the midst of an ungodly world or an ungodly surrounding peoples. That's what Israel was moving into. Israel was moving into an, a, a land filled with ungodly, rebellious people, people who had rebelled against the true and living God. And God says, I want you to be different. I want to mark you out as different among them. You know, it's interesting. In, a, in, in American history, as American, as, as, as American history began with, with our founding by faithful pilgrims or refugees or, or people that moved from Europe to here because they were looking for a place where they could practice their faith freely and openly. We have a strong religious heritage in this country. And for many generations, the country itself functioned a lot like what you would call a Christian nation. doesn't mean that everybody within the society were Christians. We're born again. We're saved through faith in Christ. But there was an influence of that faith on the society as a whole. Now, one of the things that that led to was it was sometimes hard to tell the difference between those who were Christians and those who weren't. Because, by and large, society behaved in more Christian ways. Well, now we're in a different era, aren't we? By and large, society does not behave in particularly Christian ways. It should not be still as difficult to tell the Christian from the non-Christian. As it was in the first century, Christianity, believing and following Christ, being named as a Christian, was a unique, a peculiar, and a radical thing. Christians did things very differently. Things that they did do and things that they didn't do. Even virtues like their generosity and their care for one another and their, and their taking care of strangers. They're looking after orphans and widows. These were things that were strange in Roman society. And they noticed them. And they were commended for them. They didn't participate in the idolatry of the society. They didn't participate in emperor worship. And for this they were faulted. They were misunderstood, but they were different, is my point. Deuteronomy is a call, is a reminder for God's people to be different in the midst of an ungodly or rebellious world. 
Now, that obedience, as I mentioned before, is summarized in love. I, I, I shared that with the kids. The, all of the law is summarized in that opening statement, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Leviticus picks up the other half of it that the New Testament tells us in this is all the law summarized, love your neighbor as yourself. So the law is a law of love. I, I, I encourage you sometime, when you think about Deuteronomy as a dry and boring book, I encourage you to do a concordance search. Or to do one of those, go to those, one of those websites where you can search the Bible online if you don't have an electric Bible and, and search for the word love in the book of Leviticus. And you'll be surprised at how many times. You'll be surprised at how many times that it, it, it pops up. The basis of the law is love. Love for God and out of that, love for one another. You see, that's important for us to remember because we, we function in a law judgment template. Humanity does. As a broken people, as a rebellious people, we know we are wrong. We know. We know. And yet we, we seek to justify ourselves. We seek to convince ourselves that we're not as wrong as. And so we want to justify ourselves by the things that we do and don't do. And we will easily look at the book of Deuteronomy that way. I do that. I don't do that. Well, I don't really know how to apply that, but I guess I'll just leave that one and move on. But that develops a pattern because the law wasn't written to us. The law was written to Israel. The law was not written in ways that relate a lot to our context. We're not the kind of agrarian people by and large that Israel was also. So there's a lot about the law and the what's called the, well, the ceremonial worship of Israel that does not apply to us today. The problem with that, when you read the law, is you're going to pick and choose. And the problem with picking and choosing when you read God's word is, well, you're going to have to pick and choose unless you're going to start bringing a, a lamb to church on Saturday instead of Sunday. But as you begin to pick and choose, you embolden yourself to become the determinant of what in God's word you're going to obey and what you're not. That's the problem with using the law that way, the way we as fallen humans want to use the law as a list of rules that we can align our behavior by. We cannot justify ourselves. In fact, Paul tells us in the New Testament that by the works of the law will no human be justified in God's sight. That was not the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law, in fact, was to expose humanity. It was to expose our sin. Let me just touch on the third one, then I'll go on. The, 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 the third section of the book, I call it the pessimistic Old Covenant. The pessimistic Old Covenant. The, old, the law is called the Old Covenant, Old Covenant as compared to the New Covenant. It wasn't the old one until the new came along. You didn't have an Old Testament until you had a New Testament, all right? It's the new that makes the old, old, in comparison to the new. The old is not, is not uh, um, appropriate in the same ways anymore. The old is not binding upon us anymore because of the death of the one that it concerns. The law's greatest penalty was death. And that Jesus fulfilled. He died for us. To keeping all those requirements of the law and yet dying for us in, in humanity's inability to keep them. The law has met its match. The law has been paid in full. And then Jesus rises from the dead, and we live in him, and we live in him in love. But by pessimistic old covenant, 
If you read verses 27 to 29, Moses sums up the law. Okay, I've given you the law. Those are the things you need to do. And if you do those things, you will enjoy this inheritance. But by the way, you're not going to. I know you're not going to do it. You know, things are going to go okay for a while, and then you're going to begin to slide, and you're going to begin to drift this way and that way, and you're not going to continue to follow the Lord your God. You're going to be distracted aside. You're going to be following the Baals. You're going to be seeking prosperity in other places. I know you're going to do this, Moses says. And he's right, and they do. He says, when you do, this is what's going to happen. And he begins to lay out the judgment of God that is going to come upon them because of their departure from devotion to him. And that explains really what's happening in the rest of the New Testament. Or not the New Testament, the Old Testament, sorry. The rest of the Old Testament, the history books, are the record of that occurring on through Kings and Chronicles. It's a, it's a history of God's people failing to follow him and be devoted to him, the leaders as well as the people, and ending in that climactic judgment at the end of the historical period when they're carried away into Babylon. But then they're restored. The prophets in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy explains the rest of the Old Testament, it explains the prophets. The prophets are basically indicting the people. They're calling the people to account. They're coming back to the nation and charging them with something. They're charging them with the covenant. They said, you made a covenant with God. You stood there on the plains of Moab and you made an agreement with God himself and you have not kept it. You're in grave danger, folks. God is going to require that of you. And that there's a call for them to turn. There's a call for them to come back. There's a call for them to repent. And yet they'll continue in their sin. They will be carried off in that captivity. And yet even the prophets, because of that, because of that, they point toward hope. They point toward a future that will be different. That future that will be different and the, and the pointing toward that, even the book of Deuteronomy is where I want to spend the, most of the rest of my time. But I, w- I want to pause here and do something else first. Is that okay? Just make a little turn here. You have this Old Testament law. You have these Ten Commandments and you really like them by and large. You, know, you want to put them up on your courthouse or somewhere and, and there's, there's, there's something about that. Do we just, as Christians, do we toss aside the book of Deuteronomy? Do we toss aside God's law or do we pray with the psalmist? Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. What would those wonderful things be if the law condemns? If the law will simply expose my sin, what wonderful thing can come out of it? I want to give you a template. I want, when, you, when you approach the law, when you're, in, when you're reading your Bible, I want to give you a template. This is the way, this was given to me by a man named Ray Orland about a year or so ago. So it's, it's really kind of fairly new. It's, it's fresh. It's current. hasn't been stale. hasn't gone through generations and generations of preachers yet. So you can, you can use this. Okay, in fact, I put it on a slide here. Go ahead and give us that, Ryan. Four things that the law does. First of all, the law, and just imagine one of the Ten Commandments. The law reveals God. The law tells us something about God because God's law is an expression of his holy character. Okay? Let's take the commandment, the last one, the tenth one. Thou shalt not covet. You should not desire your, your neighbor's house, your neighbor's car, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's servant, your neighbor's donkey. I don't know why you want your neighbor's donkey, but apparently you do. So God says, don't covet your neighbor's donkey. Okay? What does that tell us about God? It tells us that God is not a coveting God. 
This law is an expression of his character. God, can I boil this down? God does not want your stuff. I shouldn't tell you that before the offering. I shouldn't tell you that before we receive this morning's offering. You're going to say, great, I can keep it. God doesn't need, God doesn't need our stuff. God is not just waiting, man, he's been watching your car and he's just wishing he could take a spin in that baby someday. No, God is not desiring your stuff, okay? God is not a coveting God. God is not needy in that way. Giving is is because we need to give. It's not because God is wanting what we have. God is not a coveting God. But what does it tell us about humanity? The law exposes something about fallen humanity. It tells us something about ourselves. What is it about me that I have to be told not to want your stuff? Why is it that marketing is so successful? Marketing plays on this coveting within us. Politics plays on this coveting within us. Because it's there. Because it's so strong and powerful that I do want what I don't have. The essence of the fall itself, Adam and Eve looked and said, Oh yeah, God's withholding something. There's this other fruit that God said we shouldn't have, but if we just had that, we'd be like God. That was something that God, no, no, that's not for you. God says, I don't want you to know evil. I don't want you to know evil. So when you're in the midst of the stuff of life and you say, this isn't right, you're agreeing with God. God says, that's right. And I never, child, I never wanted you to know evil. That goes back to the fall. That's fallen humanity. And it was driven out of humanity's coveting that which we did not have, wanted for ourselves. It tells us something. The law tells us something about ourselves. But not only that, the law does give us a way to live then in the midst of our fallenness that guard your heart then from coveting. Be content. Typically, look in the New Testament. When, you, when you're reading law in the Old Testament, maybe there'll be a footnote. Maybe there'll be a, a cross-reference that'll point you towards the New. Or look for the same word in the New Testament. I love the verse in Hebrews 5. It was one of Vera Rolfa's favorite verses. We referenced it yesterday. There's nothing that Vera is denying, is, is, is needing or longing after today. Not now, not in the presence of the Lord. You see, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6 says, Do not guard your, what is it? I'm going to have to turn there. Now that I, now I got myself all turned around. I said it's such a wonderful verse and I can't even quote it to you. Hebrews 13, verse 5. Keep your lives free from covetousness or keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So wait a minute, didn't God change subjects there? Don't be desiring things because God has said, I am with you. You see, what you have is who you have or should I say, who has you? That's why we don't covet That's why we need not covet, because God holds us in his own hands. What else do I need? And that's why I say Vera, that was one of her favorite verses, and now she's in the presence of God. In the presence of God where there is fullness of joy, what else does she need? Yeah? Yeah. You see, that's the fourth thing the law does, is it promises us something in the future. There's an implied promise of a better future. 
I can be assured that in Christ's perfecting work, there will be a day when I will not be wrestling with this jealous, covetous nature any longer. You see? So bring that implied promise in. And he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ. God will work in you that in the future you will not covet as you do today. Those things you wrestle with now, you will one day be perfected from. You thank the Lord for that. There's a confession, and yes, there's some of me there. I see that in me, and yet one day there won't be. I'd like to offer you that as, a, as, as an example of a way to read the law. It reveals God. It shows us something about ourselves. It does point to how we then should live in light of that awareness of our fallenness, but there is a promise of what God is doing in his redeeming work to remove that from us. Day by day, glory to glory, into eternity. The law points us towards what we will be. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things from your law. But... What about now? I said that the law also suggested or needed a restoration. Moses says, this is what you got to do if you're going to stay in the land and live in God's inheritance. In fact, mark it down, folks. Choices that you make matter. The choices that Israel made matter. The choices that you make will matter. You can step into God's will. You can step into deeper and closer fellowship with him. You can back out of that as well. You can step away from that. You can ignore his voice. You can harden your heart against the pressing of the Holy Spirit. And you can turn to your own way instead and be separated from his presence, be separated from his blessing. The inheritance that he has with a full affirmation and acceptance in Christ, fellowship with the Father, dwelling with him in light, that is our inheritance. That is our birthright in Christ. And yet we can back away from it. Choices that we make matter. The law tells us that we will fail. It tells us we will fail. It tells us we will need restoration. And it promises that there will be one. Turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30, if you're using one of the pew Bibles, I encourage you to bring a Bible because then you can, you can, you can mark in it. You know, please don't mark in the pew Bible. Somebody else might not want the same verse circled that you did. But um, So I encourage you to bring your own Bible, and if you don't have one, I'd love to help you with that as well. But, but if you're using the Pew Bible this morning, I'm on page 147. Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 1. When all these blessings and curses that I have set before you come upon you, and you take them to heart wherever the Lord disperses you among the nations because you didn't keep the law. And when you and your children return to the Lord and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything that I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you aside from all the nations where he has scattered you, even if you've been banished to the most distant land under the heavens. From there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you back to the land that belonged to your fathers, and you will take possession of it. You see, you can have an inheritance. You can own a promise by God and yet not being enjoying it because of unbelief. And unbelief that leads to disobedience. He will bring you back into the land that belonged to your fathers and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. How will that happen? Verse 6, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts 
and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. How's it going to happen? How is he going to bring them back? The problem is with the heart. You see, what the law does for us, the law is a searchlight upon our own hearts. It shows our inability. That's, by the, by the, that's why by the works of the law will no humanity, no flesh be justified. Because by the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law points out sin to us. And yet, God says, when you, when you have sin pointed out, and when you have seen your sin under that law, then you will see your need of rescue. He says, that's what I will do. I will rescue you. The issue of the law is an issue of the heart. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart. How will I do that? He says, I will write on your heart. I will circumcise your heart. I will change your heart. This is an allusion to what is called the new covenant. Jeremiah 31 expresses it more, more fully. I will put, I, I will put, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will put my law, he says, within them. It's a new covenant. Jeremiah writes about it. Ezekiel writes about it. You know, it's interesting, even the book of Micah, Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, he has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. What does he go on from there? to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Is that new instruction that Micah's giving? No. That's a summary of the law again. God has told you what you need to do, but what we're unable to do ourselves, the problem is in the heart. He says, I will give you a new heart. Ezekiel puts it in picturesque words. He said, I'll take out your heart of stone. I will give you, I will give you a heart of flesh. You will be restored. That's a, new, that's, a, that's a new life promise for Israel. The new life promise for Israel in Hebrews chapter 8. I'm not going to turn there, but you might want to write it down. Hebrews chapter 8 takes that quote out of Jeremiah and explains it a little bit. He says, this is why you have a new covenant. This is why you have a new testament. He says, because there, there was nothing wrong with the law. Don't ever think that the law is a problem. Don't ever think that God's book is wrong. We are wrong. He says, there's no problem with the law, but finding fault with them, he said, I will make with them a new covenant. I will make a new covenant. He begins to quote Jeremiah with the house of Israel, the house of Judah. I will put my spirit upon them. I will write upon their hearts. I will change their hearts. Now Paul steps in and says, that new, that promise of restoration for Israel, that's our promise. That's for us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 that we are ministers of that new covenant. That new thing, that different thing, that new thing that makes the old obsolete and worn out and no longer applying because the law has been fulfilled in Christ and now I live new by the Spirit within me who changes my heart. And the law is a heart issue. Walking with God is a heart issue. Loving the Lord my God with all my heart, that's where it starts. If I could fix that, everything else would fall into place. And the Lord says, I can fix that. Greater things than these will you do, Jesus says, because I go to the Father. Because he goes to the Father, he sends the Spirit. And the Spirit of the living God now dwells within us. There's how all things come.
There's how we're made new. Not by my ability to do, but by the Spirit of the Lord within me. I have been given new life. The, uh, that law then within us is summed up in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians is a book that, that, that tells us don't live by law, don't live by rules. You're only going to stir yourself up to failure. Live instead by that indwelling Holy Spirit. We're going to take a pause after Easter, and we're going to break away from our Route 66 series to spend about seven weeks in the book of Galatians. For that reason, I don't want us to get it too worn out in law. I must remember what it is that God has done for us. The law is summarized. The works of the flesh are evident. The law shines its light upon them. But as contrast to the works of the flesh, the works of the law, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, meekness, self-control. He says, against these things, there's no law. There's no law. So if I'm producing in my life the fruit of the Spirit, if you're living in the fruit of the Spirit, if that's what's coming out of your life, you don't worry about Deuteronomy because Deuteronomy's covered. The fruit of the Spirit is love. All of these things that the law tells us to do, they are fulfilled by the Spirit's living in us. And so Jesus says, a new commandment give I to you. And what is that new commandment? He says, a new commandment I give to you that you do what? That you love one another. Pause. Hold on. Is that new? A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Wait a minute. I remember back in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, where he says, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In the book of Deuteronomy, he says, don't just love yourselves. In fact, love the strangers among you. Love the resident aliens because you yourselves were strangers, aliens in the land of Egypt. And I brought you out. I took care of you there. You be like me. You take care of those who are powerless. Love one another. What is Jesus saying? A new commandment. I give to you, love one another. Oh, I didn't finish it, did I? A new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. That's what's different. That's what's new. What did he do? What did he do? How was it that Jesus would love us? What he's saying prophetically, he's demonstrated already by the washing of their feet just before he says that. But it wasn't the point about the washing of the feet so much that he would humble himself. Beyond foot washing, he would humble himself even unto death, the death of the cross for us. He says, how far? How far to love one another? Love one another as I have loved you. This much, he says. And he stretches out his arms, and he dies. That's the call. That's the call. Our love for one another, our living in God's law of love is predicated on this. It's founded on this. It's based on this. It can't be done except for this, that we love because he first loved us and gave himself for us. When we look at the Savior, the old hymn says, Oh, soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior. Life more abundant than free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim. 
all the things that get in the way, all the things that cause me to hold in instead of give, all the things that cause me to reserve instead of share, all the things that cause me to to climb up on others instead of lifting others up, begin to grow dim when my eyes are on him instead because he's the one who has me. Jesus paid it all. What do I need to worry about? What do I need to hold on to? The law of love, his love for me, frees me then to love one another. And when I do, I will have fulfilled the law. I don't need to worry about what Deuteronomy and Leviticus have to say. It is a law of love. A law of love that's based on my Lord's love for me. But there's one more point I want you to not miss out of Deuteronomy. That can be good news, and it can be bad news. Deuteronomy is a book that says, this is God's way. And yet, we have wandered. The the hymn we sang before, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We are prone to wander. And yet, God knows. God told his people, I have a land for you. It's a good land. I want you to have it. And if you walk with me in these ways, you will enjoy the richness of it for years and generations to come. And yet he, he knew they would not, and he knew there would be consequences. God had a people he made. First he made just two. They were Adam and Eve, and he loved them. And yet he knew that they would turn, they would rebel, that they would wander. And yet already before the foundation of the world, the Son had already been determined that he would die in our place. My point is this. Our wandering, our weakness, our inability, our failure, God knows. You have wandered. You are like Israel. You live in their experience. You and I also, week by week, day by day, need his restoration. Fall back on his love. If Deuteronomy tells us anything else about God, among all the, all the else about God that the, that the law tells us, it tells us this. God is a restoring God. God takes us in spite of ourselves and restores us. Do you need his restoration? Do you need his restoration? When you look into your own heart, do you see there a love that is imperfect? A heart that has wandered? A heart that has coveted and longed for other things, longed for something that was somebody else's, longed for someone else instead of him. And yet our God is a restoring God. Our God is the God who says, you're going to do that, and yet I am going to bring you back. I am going to grab hold of your heart, and I am going to bring you back to myself. And I am going to give my own son to do it. That's the book of Deuteronomy. A God who knows our deepest weakness and yet has determined to restore us. Do you want to be restored? That's God's way back. I would like to uh, invite you to pray with me. As I, as I close in prayer, the worship team is going to come back up. And, and even now, if you, if you just feel like, you know, I, I need to come alongside somebody else. I need, to, I need to come forward and have somebody else pray with me. I'm not even sure I know how to pray. I just sense in my heart I need to be restored. 
I invite you to come forward and someone would be happy to pray with you this morning that you can know God's peace, God's love for you and out, out of that have it flow out of you too. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are a holy and a righteous God. Father, we thank you for your law because it tells us that you are good. Father, we ourselves do not like this evil that we find ourselves in. We ourselves do not like the pain and the hurt of a broken world that we exist in. And Father, even that which we know is not right, we find that we cannot change even about ourselves. Lord, we ask again this morning for your restoration. We ask again this morning for the renewing of your spirit. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and take not your presence from me. Restore unto us, Father, the joy of your salvation and renew us with your spirit. Well, that's what we ask for this morning. That basis of the new covenant, you giving us your spirit to work your love and your work within us. Father, would you do that even this morning. Lord, touch those of, those of us among us who, who especially need to pray with somebody else this morning. Lord, do that. Bring us forward even now while we're in worship, while we sing. Father, would you bring us to fall in our hearts before you and to experience this morning your love, your grace, your restoration. We thank you for that, Father, in Jesus' name. And all who believe said, Amen. Ushers, as you come forward, uh, we're going to receive the